yeah, as of now, or when this episode goes out. So it's a special announcement um, intro. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. It is a science book shambles today with Helen Chersky and also the announcement of a tour that we'll be doing. Josie, myself, Helen and more to be announced. A science music comedy tour of Australia and New Zealand. Next March and April we'll be playing Sydney, Melbourne, Christchurch, Wellington, Auckland and Perth. And you just need to go to this new website. I'm just going to turn to Trent now. What's it called again? Cosmic Shambles? CosmicShamblesLive.com CosmicShamblesLive.com and you will find out when we're playing out there and what we're doing and hopefully we're also going to do some extra book shambles shows as well. And keep listening as well to the podcast because at the end we'll announce who's won the box of books this week. By the way, the boxes of books are coming out very, very soon but I've been on tour. So if you're waiting to get a box of books, they will be coming to you. Bye-bye. I like this having my ankles fun. It feels it's very... Um... It's civilised, isn't it? Mm, and that like was the voice of Helen Chersky, who is today's guest, talking about the fact that we live in such a small uh, studio uh, that we've had to... It became like a submarine movie yesterday, didn't it? It did. I'm taking my shoes and socks off again, like yesterday, oh. and I hope that isn't disgusting. I have very clean feet. I'm so sorry. And so anyway, and that's the voice of Josie Long. This is Josie and Robin's book shambles. And uh, I was going to quickly find out, Josie, uh, before we get started and, and talk to Helen, what have you been reading on the way here? I'm still reading Hope in the Dark page by page, slow and steady, because I don't want to finish it. I'm enjoying it so much. Although there was recently one part of it that I was stuck, like all the way through, every single word almost, I've been like, this is a tonic for my soul. You know that bit in the Bob Dylan song where it was like, like it was written in my soul, like every page, everything. And then this chapter, there's been something about, um, what was it about? Oh, about non-hierarchical approaches or something. And I was like, mm, this isn't helpful for me. You've, you've annoyed me, Solnit. There's a page and a half in this 150-page book that hasn't been exactly pertaining to my life. So what you, it's that problem where you meet someone, you get on incredibly well with them, you have everything in common with them, and then there is one small detail, one, one mm. band that you despise mm. or consider to be not acceptable in some way or yeah. other, perhaps a film, or just an extremely racist attitude that had been hidden, and you go, well, this has gone awry. <laughs> and the, the level of disappointment... It's on the turn. Yeah, the level of disappointment whenever... Whereas other people, you go, oh, well, they're kind of uppy-downy, easy to accept. Yeah, so whereas it sounds if you're like in love with someone... Book, and they say something, one thing. You're, I had him. Um, I don't know whether I. Oh no, never mind. Oh well, there we go. That was very <laughs> enigmatic. Um, I just was reading on the way here. Uh, distraction pieces. Uh, which was. Oh, you got um, it with you. I have it with me. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, distraction pieces is uh, a podcast by Scroobius Pip, and uh, he's made it into a book. And uh, you're in it. I am in it. I'm in it. Preaching away. I don't know if Helen's <laughs> in it, but you will be in it. Um, and it's uh, it's just a lovely, just taking lots of bits and pieces from all of the different interviews he's done with many, many different people, Adam Buxton and uh, Billy Bragg, and just a, 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 there is a, a really big variety of people, and it's about kind of passion and poetry and songs and the nature of existence. So, so you're but, all zen now? You're all sort of prepared for the rest of the day? Never zen, Helen, never <laughs> zen. I was the, just curious. <laughs> I would, I'd quite like to be... Have you, have you dabbled in... Because you were saying you were on the west coast of America once. Did you ever dabble in zen? 
No, I did. I did live in California, and there are a lot of people who spend a lot of time sitting, staring out to sea, you know, contemplating their existence. Um, but the ones I knew were oceanographers, so they were probably measuring things. Uh, yeah, no, I haven't. But I do. But I do a lot of sport, and I think the sport does it for me. Like, I know I, I hear people talk about meditation, and I, I can't be bothered to sit still for meditation. But when I'm running, I hit this sort of or swimming. You know, I'm I'm very happy. Just you know, empty brain, just kind of enjoying the physicality of it. Yeah. So I think I get it from sport, and I don't, but I don't sit still to do it. Yeah, because they did a top five thing. It was on on uh, Radio Four uh, quite recently with Claudia Hammond, where uh, and it was what were the five things that people found uh, most restful? And it was yeah. uh, books uh, doing nothing at all. <laughs> um, uh, solitude, exercise uh, nature. One, exercise wasn't in there. Was it not? Oh. I, no. thought I, heard, I, thought, I thought I heard them talk about that on the. Uh... No, exercise didn't make the top five. Oh, um, do you know? I had a thing when I was twenty-two. I had a little, um, like a fling with someone who was thirty-one, right? And they said to me that they, I, we were both talking about how we like swimming, and I said, "Oh, I just find it so boring though because it's like really repetitive." And he said to me, like. Oh, I love it because it's the one time where I can just calm my thoughts right down and switch them off. And I remember thinking, what an old man who wants to switch his <laughs> thoughts off. Ugh, boring. And then, like, the last couple of years, I've been like, oh, I get it. He's totally right. This is my absolute calmest time when you can just think about your breathing and hear the water around you and just enjoy This is wild it. swimming, isn't it? Well, no, it's any sort of swimming oh, well, in a pool yeah, as long as it's not wild too swimming, you have to pay attention though, because you have to know where you're going. Yes, and that ma- that matters quite a lot in the ocean. You're looking for like the third tree to the left or whatever. You've got to yeah, you can't you just can't swim. Out. Just swim. <laughs> so yeah, it's actually it's easier to do the meditative thing in a pool because you are you know it's the, here are the tiles again. <laughs> and I just count no, the not the pool the I went to. I went to one of those pools with the wave yes, machine the and all that kind of stuff. Oh, right. And so you have to just keep, keep <laughs> alert because suddenly you go, oh, used band aid, and there was quite a lot of that. Also, it was a pool where I, I realised that my uh, it, was a, it was a certain area of, of uh, England and I thought, my lack of any of my pasty white skin having an inked-in Union Jack is really marking me out as the chrysalid of this particular town. Not a patriot! I'm, I know this is irrelevant to the podcast, but where do you like to swim best? Um, so I do like long 50 metre pools I swam in the best pool ever I was in uh, Reykjavik for the first time a couple of weeks ago and they have the thing which is I've swum in like pools all over the world because I go and find them right, to try them out and it's got a 50 metre pool so you can have proper swim and then next to it it's got these things they call hot pots which are little jacuzzis of different temperatures oh. so you do your hard swim and it's all outdoors and then you go and sort of roast yourself in these various little hot pots for an hour. That's my brilliant. dream. It's that's brilliant. Amazing. And it's just a city pool in Reykjavik and it costs you five quid to get in. It's the cheapest thing in Iceland. Well, that's... Oh, God, yeah. You can't <laughs> buy an apple for five pounds. But I went to Finland and the public pools in Finland are all beautiful, 50 metres, like facilities like you could never dream of. See, I know some of those pools because they're in uh, Gorky Park, the um... film adaptation of Martin Cruz Smith's book. Where if you played the same, thanks venue for bringing it back. Just on it back to you. Yeah, but uh, it, it's uh, there's a great there's some fantastic scenes with William Hurt and Ian Bannon in the large swimming pool, and I had that great thing where just a, a moment of, of, of near synchronicity in its own way, where I thought one well, night I haven't watched Gorky Park for 25 years. I watched that and then went to Helsinki the next day, and as I walked into the venue I was playing, I went, oh yeah, I'd forgotten that Helsinki doubled for Moscow, and tonight I'm playing the KGB building. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. Michael Elfrick's going to get in some trouble in a minute. He's such a baddie to me because he was the baddie in the Elephant Man film and I'll never forgive him. Don't worry, was, Elephant Man's all made up. What? John Merrick really existed because I, I read the true Hang story on, of the Elephant Man. The, the David Lynch took the basic story 
and uh, actually, the uh, John Merrick was a, a cultured guy who was treated quite well by society, and he wasn't beaten by. He was actually quite a lot in control of, of, of his exhibition and all that kind of thing. But that's a typical film thing, isn't it? Like that's that's what happens. Is there's an idea that's really interesting, and it's not contentious yes. enough for Hollywood, well, no, and then well, they turn yeah. it into something. I think that it's it a wasn't. great film because I, I think David Lynch thought I'm not telling a true story. I'm telling a story based on the life of man. I'm telling a story about what it is to be an outsider human being. And I think the beauty of it doesn't... If, if anyone who goes into a, a, a film, a non-documentary film in particular, and then comes out and goes, well, I've certainly learned a lot more about World War Two, Queen <laughs> Victoria or whatever, is a bloody idiot. Because yes. you have to, that's the danger, I think, sometimes where, I mean, there's certain films I've seen where I thought it annoys me because they're sold as being true films. Like the uh, In the Name of the Father, which is a very interesting story. You know, the two, the father and son, both of whom um, convicted uh, for, you know, terrorist crimes. Yeah. And it, it was a very important film at the time because this, this was a period of time where you had, you know, the, the Guildford Four, the Birmingham Six, lots of different groups of people in, imprisoned uh, who were innocent. And just by changing a couple of facts in that, it means that the power of that film means people go, yeah, well, they made that bit up, so they probably made up everything else. Mm. I interviewed um, the ast one of the astronauts who was on the International Space Station when they were making Gravity, which they put a huge amount of effort into to make it authentic, right? And he spent 20 minutes ranting about how it's such a good film. They got every detail right, and he hated it because they got every detail right. And after a while, I sort of said, so what was it you didn't like? And um, he said it was purely the fact that they went from the International Space Station to the Hubble telescope and then to a Chinese satellite and back to the ISS. And he's like, it's completely unrealistic. And it was fascinating because he'd spent 20 minutes ranting about how they got the words on the screens right and only eight people in the world knew that word for this. They put all this effort, but that one fact that they had done, which for the plot of the film, not that there was that much plot in it, but you know, that one thing just... He found that so offensive. It's the same as the friend thing. I've met someone who would just, oh, me and Rebecca Solnit. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Damn you, Rebecca Solnit, for your 500 disappointing words, which are not about me. Yeah, but you're right. It's the smaller the difference, the greater yeah, yeah. the yeah, crime. The yeah, yeah, it's like your black mark thing. It's just like one black yeah. mark on such a perfect yes. score sheet. Really now, there's a good book as well. What? Grayson Perry's Vanity of Small Differences, which is Ooh, his book of the uh, tableaus uh, and the tapestries that oh. he did, uh, where he did this series about class, where he did Tunbridge Wells yep, and yep. he did Sunderland. Somewhere. That's a lovely book. So we're back on books again, but we haven't finished yep. your swimming That's, anecdote. I loved that exhibition. I went to see him uh, in Sydney. I was doing some gigs there this year and I went to see his exhibition there. And, the, yeah, the big tableaus about class. The, it, the thoughtfulness of the detail is so funny and spot on. It's wonderful. It's really sort of exciting because you're like yes that is such an important signifier isn't it and it's like yeah uh, sorry I wish I could give an example but well, I okay, we've recommended Gorky Park and Vanity of Small Differences by Grayson Perry somehow while talking about leisure centres and wild swimming adventures it's a good start so <laughs> Helen we're not here to, to well we're here to talk about anything really as people who listen know that there's, there's no real strong narrative arc but Let's first of all, because otherwise we forget to do this, talk about the fact that you have a book that has just come out. Yes. And it is about the uh, physics of everyday life, or indeed the science of everyday life, I should say, rather than physics. And so um, why why did you decide this would be this your first book? Yeah, it's because there's, a, there's all this... And it is 
there's a lot of physics in it and it's nobody talks about it right people think about physics as being quantum and cosmology and there's all this stuff in the middle there's feathers and clarinets and dolphins and trees <laughs> and cake and all of it is fascinating and the thing that is fascinating about it is it's the same rules you know the the same patterns they don't just you know gravity doesn't just work for planets it works when you weigh things whenever you walk into a kitchen and you want to do some baking you weigh some flour you use scales what you're doing is you're measuring the gravitational pull of the earth the recipe book should say what you need is some flour some eggs some sugar whatever and a thing the size of a planet <laughs> because if you don't have a thing the size of a planet you can't weigh how much you've got right so it's, so it's about how there's all these little patterns in the everyday and they are fascinating and wonderful. And people think that science is a long way away or difficult or weird. And actually, people know a lot of things already, right? You know, you see coffee stains. Whole, the start of one chapter begins with a coffee stain. Coffee stains are really interesting because they, you can spill your coffee. I don't drink very much coffee, so I do tend to spill it purely in order to do this demonstration. <laughs> Sorry to any coffee fanatics out there. But you spill coffee and you make a filled in shape. And when you come back later and it's dried, it's an outline, like an outline of a body in a thriller, right? And there's a reason for that. And once you get at that reason, it also explains, you know, how things like insulin tests work and how trees can grow to be so tall and why they can't grow any taller. And so there's all these patterns in the everyday world that I think they're just people are interested and they're not helpless if you want because once you start seeing the pattern, you see it in lots of places. And then the other thing which I think scientists don't talk about enough is the perspective it gives you, because it's not just about so the final chapter is all about your my perspective on these three. Each of us has three life support systems, um, our, our own body, our planet and our civilization. And knowing a little bit about the patterns means that you can walk through the world and suddenly those life support systems make more sense because you see the patterns that are keeping the whole thing running. And I thought no one was talking about it, so I was going to write a book about it. So oh. this is, um, I mean, Marcus Chown is someone who I always think is very good at, it's a different kind of book to your book, but again, taking what might be seen as the mundane and the everyday and then going into quantum mechanics using, for instance, you know, reflections on the window of a train or whatever it might be. What When you started writing this book, do you start off just going, I better write a book, I'm doing telly and radio now? Or within it, are you there thinking, there's something that I, there's, there's, there is an end point, there, there, there is something that I really want people to get out of this. For you, was there, is it a broad number of things? Is it just the accessibility of science or behind it all because I'm, I'm thinking of things like when you've worked in you know looking at nature of climate and uh and of course there's a very contentious uh area in terms of the mass media um so what what were you hope what do you hope from this there's a lot of answers to all of that and um, the first reason i wrote was that i'm i love words and the great thing about writing is it forces you to think which people forget you shouldn't do any writing until you've done some thinking so i was asked to write a book for several years and I wouldn't until I'd thought of something that was worth writing about. And the thing that I hope that people take away from it is that the world isn't mysterious and the mundane isn't boring. It's not like, oh, there are the things we, you know, we give the kids on a Saturday afternoon to occupy them. We'll put some, you know, cabbage water and see that if they can make it change colour. Uh, it's an indicator, so you can make it change colour with a lot of things in the kitchen. Um, it's, it's that this actually matters because the same thing that explains, um, you know, the coffee stain, for example, is also what makes insulin tests work. And the same thing that explains why popcorn pops also keeps the weather running. And it's that appreciation that science isn't, it isn't a pile of facts. Mm. It's a systematic thing. And we all, you know, we have this thing about evidence-based science that we, sh we should be able to see the evidence. The evidence is all around us. 
And I think it really, it really, I find it really sad that people feel disconnected from the world. Like I notice if you talk to, you know, perhaps uh, my parents' generation or their parents' generation, they were very hands-on. They, they had to fix things and make things. And now if, you, if something breaks, people sort of take two steps backwards. 30 years ago, they took two steps forward. And started but isn't part of that know? that we've got a level of where if, if you go back to my parents' generation, probably go back to me, actually, when oh. I was younger, it was a very long time ago. <laughs> but uh, you could mend things. There, there was a level we were working on a scale uh, with a kind of, you know, the, the science was be using them was, and... was a mechanistic. But, but a... A di- so, so they've moved on. So you're right that often in the world we can't fix things anymore. We still have to sit on chairs and you know, use tables. We're still about the same size. So there are some things that still like. We don't have to fix things anymore, but the ability to ask questions is more, is better, more important than ever because everyone's trying to tell us everything. And knowing the framework doesn't just, it may not tell you all the answers, but it tells you the right questions to ask. And, and people have confidence to ask the right questions. Because if, if you know this, these are more or less the systems, then you're not as afraid of your question being stupid. So if someone tries to sell you some like cleaning product that does some, that's, they, you know, they're claiming it does something obviously nonsensical, you see enough of the pattern to spot that this, this is the right question to ask. So I think you're right, it's shifted from fixing things directly, although I still take things apart and put them back together when I can. Um, they don't always go back together as, go, as well as they used to, I'll admit that. Uh, but it's about knowing how to query society and how it works and how we can interact with it. Because the world is very complicated. And if you see it as just piles of facts, it, it just looks complicated. Like, who wants to get up, get up out of bed in the morning and deal with this like mass of complication and just weird stuff that's happening? But if you get up in, out in the morning and go, oh, well, you know, the reason my toast fell upside down is because that's about how big toast is and that's how high tables are. And so the rules of physics mean toast falls upside down. You know, you um No, oh, I thought you it was Lorraine some... Kelly using Beyond the Television Telekinesis. <laughs> we can't Maybe in your out. case. Yeah, I should Maybe stop reading case. Nexus. Um, but, you know, you can actually face the world and, and instead of feeling like a piece of flotsam that's just being carried along by this whoosh of technology, you can actually go, no, I, I see why this might happen or why that might happen and I can ask the question. Mm. Oh, no, I was going to say that, uh, do you know what's been a real boon for fixing things? YouTube. Yeah. Me and my sister are always like, you don't need parents if you've got YouTube. <laughs> because then you go, how do I fix this? But I, I think you're right, there's, and I can see it in lots of strands of things. Like what I think about people my grandparents' age who knew the names of flowers and plants and uh, wildlife better and, and were more connected in in terms of like ecology and things like that. And I feel like there's so many ways that you're disconnected at the moment. But it, it, it's it's just about being given the key to work working things out and is it disconnection by choice though well because all those things are are there you can still is it because rather than knowing the names of flowers if you suddenly go what is that flower you can take a photo there's probably a website or there's some way of identifying it using some and therefore that because people expect that knowledge is readily available they and and i'm not saying this is a good thing that you just go, well, I don't need to know that because you just go on uh, the flowers.com site. But what happens is it becomes about control and who is controlling the flow of information Mm. to you. Mm. And uh, if you uh, advertisers, I mean, the classic example is people marketing stuff to you that you really don't need to buy because you could do it with vinegar. Like you could buy a great big bottle of something very shiny or you could buy a 50p bottle of vinegar and do it with that, right? And they are telling you, you don't need to know all of that. We are going to solve your problem for you and charge you 15 quid for it Mm. and 
and and they are telling you like the, the marketing world basically tells you that we are going to take away the responsibility we're also going to take away control and so i think that it's about having you know in a world where everyone's trying to sell everything to us sometimes you need to know that basically what they're claiming to do is clearly utter rubbish or that if it says it's 99 percent if it's a uh, 50% fat free that means it's probably 50% fat right yeah. that's that great like, how to get ahead in ad- advertising the uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Bruce Robinson film where Rich D, uh, Rich D Grant is this advertising executive who then starts to grow a kind of oh, a yeah, tumour yeah, yeah. but there's a bit where he's just shouting at the people and he goes always remember if something's high in something then it's low in something else you know and this, uh, but but why do we fall for sorry no 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 I was just thinking that's why people because I, ha- I can't bear chain restaurants and pubs like it breaks my heart but it's that idea that somebody's coming along and going listen you don't have to worry about this you can trust this name and just relax You don't. somebody in authority has got this sorted for you whereas actually that's a much less satisfying satisfying way of living and it's a much sort of and it keeps you perpetually with no control really even and you can over... choose that if it's useful but that's yeah. a cho- that should be a choice yeah that's why it's I never hate useful it. don't choose it when someone's got you know like a cafe chair and a wheelbarrow outside a station or whatever it is and uh, and it turns out and you think yeah I'm going to go there so the coster and then it's shit coffee I think you're fucking ruining it this is the whole point you've got to make sure you've got to be better but why do we still fall for this because I think you know things like when you were talking about vinegar and cold cream is the other one that whenever you talk to kind of people who really know things about what co- you know just a great big jar of two pound cold cream or whatever <laughs> compared to the one which goes with powdered diamonds and in serum. it as well and memory of aztecs <laughs> then that thing people go so what is our human side which allows us to because i mean you can see i've got great skin i use a lot of product shut up josie <laughs> um, and no but that bit where i sometimes look on, on a bathroom shelf and i think wow on that shelf over a period of time many of them unfinished 400 pounds of different versions of one pound 50 cold cream why surely we should be smarter than that what is the hope and the dream problem we're is, buying into there's too much information and so we look for patterns and you're always in a world this complicated you're always going to outsource some stuff that's basically what you're doing right you're going i cannot work out everything that goes into a bottle of conditioner i am just going to buy a bottle of conditioner that says the right letters on the outside like you have to operate like that to some extent because it's just too complicated like i haven't got time to make my own shoes and make my own clothes and bake my own bread and you know i and this you have so there has to be trust but that trust should be based on a sort of you know a foundation that it is doing the right sort of thing like the number of kids i meet in schools now who don't know that bread rises for example right so and i'm not even joking does it even rise now it's one of the things that I get very angry about. One of my great... I remember years ago seeing a thing, I think it was like John Betjeman looking in a, a flour mill somewhere near Chorley Wood. Oh, he must have been um, furious. He was furious because they, they also they were playing some Muzak and he wasn't keen. No, but they, and, and they were talking about the, the, the process of making bread. He said, really now what they say is, is, is it's a way of making air and water appear to have some form of body to it. And, and if you get a loaf of even, you know, Hovis in the old days, which was all cobbles and tradition, if you squeeze that bag, if you actually have homemade bread or go to a proper baker and have real bread, then you go, oh, yeah, you don't need to eat that much of it to be quite full. But I could probably do five loaves of Mother's Pride. I'm like the cool hand Luke of dough. So... <laughs> But what again? That, that those things uh, where is that? Everything becomes. It's kind of like Slavoj Žižek said. Everything is detached from us. You know, we don't have to deal with getting rid of our own shit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so in a complicated world, 
that the interlocking of society means that if you want to be an isolationist, you're basically going to have to have a very simple life and work extremely hard on a hilltop somewhere with a farm. Um, and the rest of us mostly choose not to do that. But we can guide how wh wh who we're trusting and when and where. And so it's it's just it is laziness, but I think you can because you know that's what brands are basically. They're trying to make you lazy by going, oh, of course I buy brand X, and then I don't have to think about it. I mean, that's why brands work, isn't it? It's because you go into the supermarket and you're faced with fifty squillion tubs of laundry powder, and you know, I just want one, so I'll pick the one I had last time because it was all right. Yeah, and it works. It's like that bit in Fight Club yeah. where they they go. Um, he's he says, isn't it? Um, you want to buy a sofa because then that's your sofa problem solved forever. <laughs> and it's like, oh, please, I just need to get this problem solved. And um, I know this, I, I, I know we, we probably all read it and it's been out a while, but um, uh, Ben Goldacre's book, Bad Science, was really, really great as an introduction to making me realise how lazy I was about some things and how trusting I was about some things. Like, I, it's so funny coming from like a literature background. There are so many things that I read really critically and I always have my critical head on when I'm reading. And then just even thinking like, about when surveys are quoted on shampoo or whatever, going, how big is the sample size? Yeah. Well, what does that so mean? So I've just done, I've just done a part of a horizon on the science of hair and all of those sorts of things, like what they put on the bottles and how that gets decided. And it is, you mean, you have to read what it's, you have to read what's in the asterisk because it will tell you how much to trust whatever it said. Is any of it helpful? Thing. Is there anything really of substance so being said? So my, my conclusion, unofficial conclusion... Ha completely dissociated from the BBC, obviously, is that um, most of what causes damage to hair is people doing things to hair with hair products. So if you dye and bleach your hair a lot, then you probably do need to pay for a lot of this stuff to fix the damage that was caused by the other hair products. Huh. But if you don't really... so, And this is, you know, from a context point of view, I am someone who washes my hair with cheap shampoo twice a day, which is apparently freakishly often. If you go to the hair scientists and say, oh, well, I wash my hair with this twice a day, and they go, oh, well, um, that's unusually often. And they look at you very judgmentally. Huh. And they've got a little machine for judging you. That's it's really like brilliant. brilliant. They've genuinely okay. got a machine for judging you. So they, they advance with their little machine for judging you, and they compare your hair at the top to the bottom. And they came to the conclusion that my hair is in fabulous condition, in spite of the fact that I wash it with cheap shampoo twice a day. And it's basically because I've never dyed it and I've never bleached it. So I think once you've gone down... and some there's lots of good reasons people dye and bleach their hair and that's all totally fine but I think the point is that you're making a choice when you go down that route of doing the damage in the first place for whatever reason the the other product then it does make sense to yeah. use conditioner that is for that thing because it is fixing a very specific problem that was caused by the other product but if your hair is just kind of you know you don't really do anything to it you don't swim in chlorinated water too often. I do wear swimming mm. caps now. I didn't used oh. to. Because I used to get hairdressers that, that used to advance at me and, and pick, do this to my hair. And so I'm picking it up with my hands and, and sort of went, oh, you swim, don't you? So now I wear swimming caps. But, you know, if you don't do the damage, you don't need to fix it. My general rule on products is, oh, well, that's all right. I haven't got a rash now. <laughs> and that is true, like with hair things, because I'm I'm kind of, you know, like a lot of middle-aged, you know, writers, I'm kind of a little bit of psoriasis there and the eczema and everything. Oh. So if I use hotel shampoo, it's a disaster. Oh, yeah, because that stuff is basically washing up liquid, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. In it a little pot. Up, yeah, yeah. But it's I, dif I... differently dyed uh, soapy acid. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Have you ever thought of going into advertising? <laughs> yeah. Hello. What? I haven't got great looking hair. Look at my psoriasis, soapy acid. So we're not selling any soapy acid. Well, maybe we should have a song and dance number like they had in Singing Detective. That'll help sell our soapy acid. Get out! <laughs> Captains of Consciousness. That's a good book. I can't remember the author. Trent, can you look that up? That, that was a, a, a book from the 70s about the nature of advertising. And of course, just thinking again and making sure we mention the books, Vance uh, Packard's book, um, The Persuaders. 
which was oh. a very, you know, quite 1950s study. But I brought books. If you want to talk about books, oh, I brought books gonna, as well. Sorry, Josie, I interrupted I was just interested in the science of hair. Because I have a, a similar theory about moisturisers. I don't bother moisturising my face, which I think is probably bad. I do sometimes. But I also think, oh, if I use anything, it will upset the balance of my skin. <laughs> okay, that's maybe wrong. I don't you're know. Not wearing, you, you know. You don't look I don't really like you. Me. I wonder as well with moisturising and things like that. And again, I don't know really on this, but is that part of when you're saying about doing stuff to your hair that if you are constantly putting makeup on, therefore, so how is that going to affect? So we go, oh, now I need to get rid of it, and now you're use the right. But I think so the makeup quite often acts as a protective layer because it prevents some damage. Oh. So I should wear so some. my nana, who is now ninety. Four, I think she's got to the stage where you have to you have to remember. But she, I think she's ninety four. She's got really amazing skin, and she says it's because so she's got a little patch of discoloured skin on one of her cheeks, and so she's always put on lots of foundation. And as a result, that's basically been sunscreen every day of her life, and her skin is still in amazing condition. Oh, so actually, I, I think makeup can have a can be protective. Yeah, because no. one of my grands had kind of quite. I don't a, wear makeup either. It's awful, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to rub my face the whole time, so I feel like if I wear makeup, I, it stops me from an essential part of my living. I do I find it very weird, and I don't know. I, I know I it should be, but I I find an odd clash between being twenty first century human beings and feeling the necessity uh, and the pressure to then draw on your face. I find I genuinely think that is uh, I think it's just kind of a sad thing that in my, in my mind that going what a lot of effort <laughs> you know all that thing you know the, the, and I realise that's from my perspective as a man but I've, I've always found yeah the makeup thing is a bit it's a bit weird in, in some ways it's an extension of clothes and in some ways it then becomes its own thing and it's just so far off what a human ever was but I so one of the programs I've never had the chance to make is the science of makeup because it's really interesting because there's two things going on it's optical illusions which are very clever and then there's why you want your face to look the way it does if you believe the optical illusion and so if any TV producers are listening um, but but that they do I imagine <laughs> we're a hot property yeah um, you wait till that episode of Pointless but the optical illusions are really interesting and the evolutionary science it opens the door onto is really interesting but Maybe that's just me as a scientist looking no, at this. No, it's really interesting. Sort of, um, they sent me for a makeup lesson once, the BBC, because I, not, I don't, you know, I'm like, I, I genuinely have no idea. What's that black stuff with the, with the stick thing called? I, and I wasn't joking. They thought I was mad. Um, but I went to this makeup lady and she did the weirdest thing to me. She made up exactly half my face, full on makeup. And I was supposed to copy her and do the other half. But that bit in the middle, your face is distorted because on one hand, there's all those, the one side has all the optical illusions and the other side kind of looks, it's, they're both your face, but they're, they're very, very different uh, and then she said oh you're so lucky you hardly need any makeup at all and she gave me a list of 13 things which was hardly any makeup at all in her world I was like what do, what do you need if you do need makeup um, so it's fascinating but it's fa but it's more I see it more as that my sister who does wear makeup says it's like her it's like doing art every morning yes. that's how what's what she likes about it she says it's like she doesn't get enough creative stuff in her life so she she does art on her face and I'm also really but, grateful to people that want to give everyone else a treat in that way like I'm I, I always think of when people dress really like peacocks and I think I can't do it where do you no hang style. out I want to hang out in the place where people dress like peacocks <laughs> come to Dalston <laughs> I'll show you but um it's I I am grateful when people sort of make such a beautiful effort with themselves in that way but at the same time I really hope that we can exist as a society where there's never any pressure to do it ever you hope everyone's like happy quite you now. hope they're happy yeah. peacocks that's the moment they probably are Maybe it's actually my lack of hair, my scabbiness, and the fact that I don't use makeup 
made me such a miserable little fucker for so many years. <laughs> so oh, no, the, uh, coming with glitter all over yeah. your eyes. Welcome. You see, I can't do anything like that because it's like I need a hat now, not because I'm covering up baldness, but either when it gets very cold or if I go to a festival. But I can't find it. Hats don't suit me. And oh, you had that pork pie hat at the, the oh, yeah. job yeah, and bang yeah, thing, which was quite funny. Yeah, no, I, I bought that. I bought that the week oh, before. I saw the picture, but no, oh, that's so sweet. I, I bought. I bought it the week before at Latu because it was such hot weather. So I literally go, what's the cheapest but least ridiculous hat that doesn't look like I'm trying to do a low budget look as if I'm some kind of, you know, Hoxton. You should go to the other end of the scale. You should just have a daft hat collection. Mm. That's that's the but you, if you're gonna do hats, you've got to do daft hats properly, I think. So you just need to collect suitably daft hats and everyone will be excited when they see you because what hat's Robin wearing today? He's wearing a Viking helmet. Mm. It's brilliant. You know It'll be so exciting. I might just stay in. Uh, by the way, <laughs> Stuart started Stuart Lee started wearing this trucker's cap. And it's very cool. You wear a trucker's cap. Yeah, but he started wearing big glasses like I've got as well. He copies everything. <laughs> so, um, Captain of Consciousness was by Stuart Ewans, by the way. Let's look at your books. I'm so sorry to be talking But about your book is very interesting. We start with Ultraviolet Light. We get gin and tonic in there. And you're at Popcorn before you're even at page two of, uh, of the first main it's, chapter. So what, uh, there's a lot going on in it. What does it cover gin and tonic-wise? Uh, there's <laughs> that's ultraviolet, that's light. ultraviolet light. It, do you yeah. know what? It's a really small element of the book, but, but it's clearly just enough it to, to think. I should get. A, I should check on this ultraviolet <laughs> light and gin and tonic thing, and it's but probably that's... tax deductible. <laughs> that's the brilliant thing, though, is that everyone. What I did because I gave it to the members of my badminton club to read because they're, they're and they're quite good readers because they know me very well and we we sort of constructively criticise each other as athletes but you know so they're not they were going to be honest about the book and they're really interesting because some of them really loved some bits and didn't like other bits and after a while I realised that it said more about them than it said about the book yeah. there's just so many little things in it that are connected together one guy said to me he's brilliant he's really honest he's like well I just didn't like all the bits to do with food so the bread and the popcorn I couldn't really be doing with that but I like the bit about the trees <laughs> you know so so there's, there's something in there for everyone I think that's the way to look at it it's called Storm in a Teacup I probably, you're supposed to say things like that oh yeah I'm not, not, I'm not that, very, yes. I'm not very good at remembering. Anyway. Um, so quickly before we get on to the other as well, in terms of writing popular science, what were the first popular science books that you read and, and who for you now, having, having worked for a few years in science communication, who do you think, who do you look at from any decade, any century, who do you think now ah, there, there is the way to communicate ideas? So I read a lot. I've always read a lot. I love books. and But the first science book I remember reading, and this is going to sound really cliched but it it is true was a brief history of time and I read it when I was about 11 I think my mum got a copy for me and I just went straight through it and in a way that I guess it made a lot of other physics easier because if you're presented with those weird ideas early on you just take them for granted and then you just proceed so I remember reading that and I I remember it because it was well, partly because it was weird and fascinating and I got it. There were geometrical, there, there are lots of geometrical pictures in there and sort of cones and things that I got. I was like, that makes sense. I get it. I get these ideas. Uh, and then because everyone made such a fuss about me having read it, because apparently everyone bought it and didn't read it. That was <laughs> apparently what happened to that book. Um, but uh, so I remember reading that and I read what I read variety. I read everything. <laughs> so I don't so I don't know what other science books I'll have to think about that. When it comes to writers today, writers now, there are two types that I 
you know, the two types. There are the ones who just spend years on one topic and they dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. There's a wonderful book that I didn't bring with me called Feathers, which is just about feathers on birds. And they're fascinating in so many ways. And this person kind of spent, you know, 20 years just writing about feathers. And it's wow. brilliant because of the, the perspective. And then there's the, the overarching suite. My favorite bit in any book, in any science book, or the best written book is at the end of uh, Richard Forty's book, The Earth. And the, the book is about geology and he visits the various continents and talks about rocks. And then the last chapter, he sort of flies over the surface of the planet and weaves in all these little stories you've seen along the way. That is just the best achievement. That being able not just to see the perspective, but at the same time, exactly see the details that, make up that perspective that is such a wonderful skill so and i like precision with words so anyone who is very precise about how they write i'm not into loose language there shall be no loose language around here i think you know you you were the english language is so rich you know we don't appreciate because we stole words from everybody else basically mm. we've got 17 words for everything but that means there's nuance and it's it gives you so much richness in terms of communication so anyone that uses language carefully that's brilliant. So that's by uh, Thor Hansen, the Feathers book. Yes, yes, it's it is. behind it you on the screen. It's not because I'm oh, right. overly wise. Um, Richard oh, Forty. I sure wonderful... I didn't see that coming in. I was. I wrote a. I wrote a, re a, review, a review of it a couple of days ago. That's why it was on my huh. mind. Oh, is that is that is that uh, Trent has just made that yeah. pop yeah. up? The, uh, We've got a secret that, that fact. Uh, that's why I'm sitting here facing this way. So I think you're. <laughs> But behind me, all the answers are appearing. But I, oh, you know our what? Wizard of Oz moment. Toto, I told you to stop doing <laughs> yeah. that. But it relates to me to literature as well, because what I really love in a, um, you know, in a good work of fiction is a big, broad sense of the universal and then just one little human detail that makes it all make sense, you know, and it's the ability to juggle those two things, you know, something so small and something so big and how they relate. But then that's like physics as well, isn't it? It's like but very it's, tiny, it's very absolute big. absolute clarity of thinking. And that's what you've got to appreciate, that human being has, has been... Because that's the thing that's difficult, right? And all science... Um, and science writers, as well as other writers, suffer... From, you know, some of them don't do this, is that it's, uh, and people can get to judge whether I did this or not. Um, but it's it's about being able, being able to prioritise, to look at lots and lots of bits of different, different information and go, and this is how to present the hierarchy. This is the most fundamental concept. And then these are the things that build on it. And these are the things that build on those. And to be able to, that's when you know you're onto a winner, when you can build the tree, if you like, of how that knowledge sits in relation to each other. That's the most valuable. And it's hard to do, you know, and that's what science is all about. And not all scientists are good at it, to be honest. Um, and it's what everything else in life is about, you know, good, good writers and thinkers and philosophers. It's about looking, you know, that thing about looking at what everyone else has seen. What is it? Looking at what everyone else looked at and seeing what no one else saw. That thing. It's like that. It's like that's the prioritization, being able to go this thing. I, out of this pile, I'm going to pick this, and this is the most important thing, and they are right. And that oh. is such a beautiful skill. Yeah, yeah. Richard Forty does right. The dry store number one yes. uh, book. And yeah, Trilobite, yeah. That, I think. Yes, is one of so Trilobites and fungi books. are his things. Yeah, they're um, great. I also what's think in trilobite? physics... Sorry, sorry. You know Trilobites, those, uh, there were, used little, to be loads of them. They, they, little they were oval all... things that scooted around on the floor yeah, of the ocean. They, they, they look like kind of the uh, slightly hard, you know, like, like big wood labs. Yeah, really. and they lasted throughout the fossil record. They're yeah. extraordinarily long-lasting. So 
existed for millions of years. Yeah, yeah. But then they didn't last up to now. They didn't, yeah. Oh. One of those very frustrating species that almost made it to us and just didn't try oh, quite hard So enough. close, guys. But we've still got horseshoe crabs, so it's all right. Yeah, horseshoe, horseshoe crabs, crabs are amazing. Are an absolute delight. No, they're not, but they're brilliant. They're basically, they're basically, you know, people talk about living fossils, but these really are. And they, they've got such an ancient system that their blood is blue because it's based on copper instead of iron. And they, they, and they have an ancient immune system, which is, because it does stuff ours doesn't it's still used for testing drugs so lysine which is the, the, the molecule that they use is used for testing modern drugs so they they milk horseshoe crabs in a lot down um, the coast of uh sort of uh dc and down um sort of down towards baltimore they fish them out they bleed a few drops of blue horseshoe crab blood they mark on the tail to show they've done that horseshoe crab and they put it back in the sea because they're so valuable wow i need to ask what do they taste like not, I don't go around eating them. I wouldn't have thought as much. There's not much of it. If you ever turn one over, it's basically like they're these giant kind of shell things, like a mini umbrella. And then you turn it over and it's basically, you go, oh, where's the crab? Because the crab itself is in the middle with these little legs like this. And it's sort of almost stuck on the bottom of this umbrella thing. And it's, there's not much of it. Wow. It would be good, rather than killing it, you could use it with a fondue thing. And you could dip it <laughs> and lick it, but don't. Like a tortilla that you don't the trouble eat. trouble is, Josie read those stories about Charles Darwin sitting there tucking in stuff and then going, stop eating everyone, it's the bird I've been looking for. And ever since then, she's thought that science is predominantly eating things. Eating exotic and then animals. And moments of interest. Yes, that's what he did. He went around the world and he went, I'll just have a bit of that and I'll draw a picture of it. Mm, delicious. At least it's recycling, isn't it? It's using it twice. Right, we nearly run out of time, <laughs> so we better go through your books. <laughs> I want to ask you more questions about um, oh, living yeah, fossils. No, Look, the book's really good. The book's really good, so okay. I want to talk about them. Um, so, What Am I Doing Here by Bruce Chatwin. So he was a travel writer who I really... Um, I really love his writing, and I like this book. It's a collection of short essays about um, various places. So he walked, you know, moved around the world, lived with a community, wrote about it, that sort of classic thing. But then he wrote this book of essays, which is kind of that feeling. And I have done this where you wake up in the morning and you're in a foreign country and you look at the ceiling and you go, where, where am I? I can't remember. I've genuinely done this, woken up in a hotel room and gone, I'm not going to look at anything around me. I'm going to remember where I am. I've done that on tour. I've I've woken up in Um, countries and and realised and just gone, give it a moment. This definitely isn't home. Yeah, and uh, I don't have the tea and coffee making facilities so close. <laughs> oh, this wonderful soapy acid! Ow! And then the moment, um, but also the moment. Yeah, it's called "What am I doing here?" And you do also find yourself in situations which are brilliant in life, where you're like, someone hands you a squid and a four, uh, you know, four foot squid and a butcher knife. I'm vegetarian, and you're like, what? Oh, okay, all right. I guess I'll cut the squid up. You know, this this sort of disconnect because it's such a weird situation to be in. And I love that, and I love that writing. So that's one of them. And I'm going to do these right. quickly because. And he was he was did a lot of Patagonia. Was yes, it, I mean, so the, novels that's are right. based so in Patagonia. Patagonia yeah. He went down and found um, the. In fact, I think there's been more stuff. It's recently he found a fossil, he found the leg of something, and he wrote a whole travel book on the on the back of that sort of insight that he got from this this ancient land that had, had this animal in it. Um, and then uh, this is this is the lovely book that I've just finished reading, Hawaii Rising, which you won't <laughs> have heard of, but this is about the Polynesians navigating around the Pacific, and it's about a book called the a boat called the Hokulea who was built um, 40 years ago now as a um, copy of the Polynesian vessels. And they navigated. The Polynesians didn't just move around the Pacific. They traded. And so they went back and forth. So they could navigate these tiny boats against, like, the most, like, across the most gigantic ocean in the world. And um, they found their way using not just the stars, but also how the ocean was moving. And this is the story of rebuilding the boat and rediscovering from the Hawaiian elders that were dying out and that the Micronesian elders, how to navigate those boats. And 
I mean, I know I, I care a lot about the ocean and the, the human, the relationship of humans to the ocean. But I love this story because it's so it's honest. It's like because they come in as sort of scientists. They're like, oh, well, as a scientific experiment, let's see if we can rebuild this boat. And let's see if the, they could have navigated using, you know, out in the open ocean, using these tiny cues of how the ocean swells moving. And as they do it, they, they sort of realize there's all these parts of their culture that they've grown up with. That they've never connected to the fact that they're a seafaring wow. community. And, and also, it's, story. it's quite um, like it's quite an 18th century style of science where it's like we are scientists, but also we want an adventure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and we... this is, you know, it's because the Kentucky expedition, which has been discredited as a, as a sort of explanation for where the Polynesians came from, wasn't was an attempt at this. Except that these people, you know, Thor, whatever he was called, Thor Heyerdahl, that's right, um, didn't really. He just had the idea from Norway, whereas these people listened to the locals. Yeah and use that local knowledge instead of going, oh, well, we're just going to swan in as Westerners and do what we think must have happened. And it works. And it's a lovely, it's a, so it's a lovely story. And then... So I just, I'd forgotten, because I haven't, I haven't looked at what am I doing here for ages. I've, this is always the first one, apart from Shamdev the Wolf Boy, which is the moment you see that as a chapter title when you go for, but Werner Herzog in Ghana. You just know it's Werner <laughs> Herzog, he's in Ghana. Here we go, we here's go. fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yes, yeah, distinctive films, those aren't they? Uh, so, and then the other, the other two I brought. The one I didn't bring is the Count of Monte Cristo, Cristo, because it's such a good story, but it's enormous, and I couldn't, I couldn't, I had too much else to carry, so I didn't bring that in. But it's such a good story, it's such a good adventure story, and it's such a good what exploration is, of the human. Condition. I always get confused between the Count of Monte Cristo and the Man in the Iron Mask. And very often I'll sit down. Sunday afternoon, it's the kind of one where on certain channels you'll go, oh, Richard Chamberlain's version. Right. And part of it, I think, is because Richard Chamberlain, I think, did adaptations of both. Yes, Though I never maybe. confused the Thornbirds with the Count of Monte Cristo, or I've Doctor ne- Kildare, I've never seen with any Man of the, the, the telly stuff. I've only, I'm the I'm the person that's never seen the film, but has always read the book. So I'm going to nod and smile. So what is the Count of Monte Cristo story? So that's where he was um, uh, as a young man on the day of his marriage, um, whisked away and shoved basically into solitary confinement for 15 years until he tunnelled his way out of this tiny island. And then the rest of the story is him following the people that did that to him around Europe. Kind of there's a sort of a morality tale, helping the good ones and then punishing the bad ones over a you know, as a lifetime um sort of project. But the the, the amazing thing about it was it was written in seventeen something or other. It's a really long book. It's really detailed. And somebody wrote this, you know, no word processor, you couldn't go back and alter something or there was no tipex. You had to write, you had to hold this massive idea in your head all in one go. And that is as much the achievement as the book itself. The idea that it was, must have been so hard. And so See, I thought the man in the right. Iron Mask was about a very similar man, but in an Iron Mask, <laughs> who after 15 years tunnels out and gets his revenge. Oh, I'm not. So I don't. This I don't remember. Very difficult. I remember. Yeah. Someone will write in and explain <laughs> the best system <laughs> of remembering Someone those. Someone will inform us. Also, um, briefly mention because you've got what am I doing here? That's reminding me of a, a lovely book, which is Timothy West's letters uh, to Prunella Scales oh. when he was in Rep Theatre. When you were, they were both travelling around, just, and it's called uh, "I'm Here, I Think." Where are you? Oh. And what it is is this elderly actor uh, who always just had very small parts in the right place. Always after a break, he would walk to centre stage and go, "I'm, I'm here, I think. Where are you? Uh, oh, am I not? I'm by the window, am I?" <laughs> so he'd always, you know, almost that hope that they they go, "Yeah, yeah, you are right, centre stage. <laughs> oh, good, I am." <laughs> But it's a lovely oh, God, collection. They're, they're, I mean, uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of their uh, their their canal adventures as well. Sorry. So the next one is uh, next one, the Picture Palace by Paul Theroux, um, which is a lovely. So I thought I probably shouldn't bring all nonfiction. I do tend to read more nonfiction, but that's just because I I get 
I hear more about it. Mm. I, I buy books. I, I, I read so much, and I still buy books faster than I can read them, which is very distressing. And so it's a wonderful story. It's quite a famous book, I think, about a female photographer who is looking back at her life. And um, so it's sort of parts of it are her life as it goes along and parts of it are her at the end of it. And there's a lot of pressure being put on her to have an exhibition of her work, which she sees as sort of being putting the lid on all her achievements and going, okay, you're basically dead now, so you've had your exhibition, huh. let's move on. And she is bright and you know, sort of irritating, irri irritated by them. She's one of those entertainingly irritated people. And she's she's got this wonderful, and of course that's her, it's, it's written in her voice a lot of it. So she's you get her full acerbic impression of all these people who are patronizing and patronizing this old lady who can't deal with herself. And she's clearly a brilliant photographer. And it's such, it's such a, a heartwarming story because uh, she gets her own way and that's what we really want. We want the awkward sods like us, let's face it, that's all of us in this room who are clearly right all along. But just, you know, to face the world and all these annoying people who are patronising and just, you know, childish, she just deals with them. But she does it in a very funny way. So I, I like that book a lot. Uh, that's reminding me, I still haven't seen Finding Vivian Mayer. Oh, you know I this one? No. It's a documentary about a woman who uh, no one really realised, but she used to just do these most remarkable photos. And after, I think it was after she died, uh, the she was a nanny for someone, and they kind of just found they went, oh my god, and they found out she was just a truly great photographer, a photographer kind of taking New York street scenes, probably like um, you know many of the, I suppose Diane you know Arbus. Diane Arbus or or uh, Lisette model uh, before her, but I think less less so just the people element, you know, not not the people in the centre frame. But I'm not entirely sure because I haven't seen it yet. It sounds no. brilliant. Finally, Viv Mayer. So that go well with Picture Palace. And your final last choice... one is the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, which uh, is relatively recent, but it's it's the it's the story of there are these famous. Uh, HELA cells that have been um, invaluable in um, cell biology of finding things out because fundamentally if you want to test human cells you need cells that stay alive and the problem the annoying thing about human cells is they tend to die when you take them out of the human um, but there was a, a woman called Henrietta Lacks who had a very aggressive cancer and of course the nature of cancer cells is that they keep going and they took her cells and the doctor that took them, you know, made great use of them they've been absolute foundation of cell biology and no one ever really asked where they came from and, uh, you know, no one was sure of a name. And for a while there was patient confidentiality. But she was a black woman uh, living in the 1950s in America. And this author, Rebecca Scoot, went and got to know the family, spent years in those communities, understanding how they felt so used, you know, that their mother's cells had just sort of disappeared off and they'd hear about them being used to these amazing things. But nobody asked them, mm. you know. And it's the story of, you know, not only how science progresses, but also the human other side of it. Because the scientists are like, oh, there's these brilliant cells, we'll just use them. And they have been used for lots of things. And amazing science has been done on the back of them that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. But it comes from this very tragic story of quite a young mother having a very aggressive cancer uh, and, you know, growing up in a world where there was segregation in America and, you know, she was allowed into the black side of the hospital because and one of the reasons they probably took her cells is that she was not treated as well. There were permissions, you know, they wouldn't have done that to a white woman. God, I know this is ridiculous, but it's just hearing book. you say the black side of the hospital and me going, oh, I've, not like I had not. But also I'd not like extrapolated segregation to that extent. And then yeah. it's it's still really like like. Oh God, sorry. That's probably the most ignorant. But thing, it is but like, horrific. It is so horrific. Shocking. And yet, part of bad. the reason this science got done was that that was allowed. I mean, it's one of you know, it's it's. I'm not defending that in any. Of course not. It's but it's really interesting when you read that the basically the doctors used those hospitals as 
a place where you could sort of experiment a little bit more. Oh, my God. That's... Uh, you know, you could take cells. You didn't have to worry about patient permission so much. And then, of course, part of the story of her family is that they were, you know, they grew up in a, in a largely segregated world. And they this, the, those communities where they knew Henrietta Lacks and her family are still very tight. And they suffered the deprivation because in America, you know, the, the um, general uh, economic status is still quite uneven, you know, and... So it's a it's a fascinating story, and it, but it's also it feels very it feels like it's one of those books that had to be written, and you know and this journalist went along at exactly the right time to meet the family before while they were still alive to meet her daughter Henrietta's daughter before she died, and to really live with them through the final consequences of what this had meant and what it had been, and let them be proud of it at the same time as undoing some of the damage where they felt they were exploited. Because, of course, all the other doctors were like, oh, well, we just need cells, cells, sample cells from her family. Let's just take blood from her family. And they, you know, it's, it's, so it's a good sort of like you know lesson about, about how science works. So it's, is it Tuskegee, Tuskegee? Experiment? Oh, the explosion. No. Ooh, no, the no. Was Tuskegee and Tunguska. Tunguska is the, is Tunguska the, is is the, the meteorite. Isn't yeah. it Tuskegee, which was the one where it turned out that uh, black men being treated for syphilis weren't actually being given anything whatsoever. They thought they were being treated because they were... I think that might be mentioned in the book. Because that, that, again, that's, that's not going back that far in history. And, it's, and here people who are being used... There's a great yeah. quote that Eli Wiesel, who we talked about not that long ago, because I, th I think we recorded one of these on the, on the day that his death, death was announced. I just read Night again. Night is a, is a wonderful book. And the, the quote at the beginning of this book, which is, uh, we must not see any person as an abstraction. Instead, we must see in every person a universe with its own secrets, with its own treasures, with its own source of anguish, and with some measure of triumph. Oh, that's beautiful. That's fantastic. But also, it's funny because I often think about things from a fictional perspective or from, like... An ethical perspective when it comes to me doing stand-up. So, uh, so many times in my life, I've talked about other people on stage, albeit in a way that, like, obfuscates who they are or whatever, and it comes back to bite you, and you sort of... You do think, like, what am I allowed to write about? Is there anything I'm actually allowed to write about with no ethical consequences and stuff? But I never thought of it from a scientific perspective, really, and, like, then it's like, oh, my God, of course, like, medical experiments have been exploited. Yeah. Well, You're only like worrying about the ethical consequences of stand-up. I think it's a very good thing to worry about but, but you can just turn it to, do, would I feel happy arguing with someone about what I've just said? Yeah. I think that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. It, there's no you, right, if, there's no black and white Or would you feel uneven and, 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 and discombobulated? Or would you feel like uh, you would just have to go, hey, a joke's a joke, mate, <clears throat> like that. I just got in trouble the other day because um, I did an interview with someone about food and he ended up putting all this stuff in about my family that I hadn't said and that I didn't want in. And then my mum's friend shared it on Facebook. And was she like, went and said that her mum's meringues never used to rise around the Christmas time. <laughs> and her mum's only gone and bloody found out. And she just keeps sending her broken bits of egg white and yeah. meringue. It's disgusting. <laughs> I, I really like this. Um, there's a bit in this Paul Three book that says, we kid ourselves best, but just for so long, since our moods are visible in our gestures. Oh, that's very close it's to It's full Vonnegut, of very quotable uh, things, that book. Uh, yeah. But, there's a, but just, you know, there's this thing about the science book. People keep asking me now to write recommended reading lists for scientists. And I'm like, don't read about science. Yeah. Read about what happened around science and read about things that are not science. We don't need our future scientists to be reading any more about science. That's what they get in the courses and the university stuff and the your textbooks. What we need to do is educate them in what the rest of the world is doing. Yeah. So so I'm always trying to um, sneak. People are like, oh, well, you can recommend some science books. And I'm like, no. What f you can have two things. You can recommend science books, and that's one thing, and that's fine. Or you can recommend what scientists should read, and that is not science books. <laughs>
uh, in my opinion. But sometimes yeah. those <laughs> science so stories are sometimes, because I've talked to scientists who, especially young scientists who go, there's points where they go, well, why did I do this? And then they might read a certain book. And again, it's one with a very human story. And they go, oh, yeah, I've remembered now. Yeah. We've run out of time. Well, thank, thank you, you so very much, you. Helen. It's so uh, exciting to ask you questions. Storm in, uh, Storm in a Teacup uh, is available now. So Storm in a Teacup is going to be one of the uh, books we give away in our big bag of books. Every single week now we give away a uh, bag of books, parcel it up and send it to any of our UK residents. We apologise, non-UK residents are not eligible for this particular competition. We'll work out a competition for you. Josie, who's in the magic draw this week? So the following people have contributed to our Patreon, 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 and um, I just wanted to say thank you so no, much. No, 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 you were that. meant to do the no, page I was on and say no, you won the thing. No, this is the page. Oh, all right, you oh, did not this show is me an that. Absolute... Well, she, okay, she grabbed it hang from on. me. I'm very confused by this then. Yeah, right. So the winner this but week I was is... Out the thank you. Uh, yeah, I know, but that's not what I was doing. Building up to another thing. Intolerable. Anyway, if you're still listening... No, right. Sandy May, it might be a lovely surprise. You stopped listening now because we started bickering. Do you know so, what Sandy May, you will be receiving Storm in a Teacup uh, by Helen as well as a wide selection of other books, novels, non-fiction, books that both Josie and me have loved but now can no longer fit them in. Then uh, the best way to get in contact with us is either via our Twitter account, which is at Cosmic Genome, or you can go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles have a look on that page and you'll be able to contact us there so we can get your address and send the books to you but josie patreon's very important to us yes it is although i kept thinking about how in when i learned in french the french word for unbearable is insupportable unsupportable that's what you are unsupportable <laughs> okay so we want to say thank you to these people uh michael contario Geraldine byers russell hughes uh uh, Jean Edwards or Jeanne Edwards Sean Ellis Jenny Landreth who's a friend of mine and who is a big swimmer and a big outdoor swimmer <laughs> just because we had some swim chat oh okay then and uh, Hannah Clark Matt Lee Rebecca Hindle and Jenny Hemming thank you very much everyone who supported us and Jenny Landreth has written some brilliant books about swimming and trees Jeez. So look them up. All we'll the best have her topics. on at some point then. Won't we have her on yet? <laughs> yes, we should. Silly, wasn't it? Helen, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Bye. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Hey.